Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Adam Forestine, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco outpost. And our colleague Damien Garday is on vacation this week. It's Thursday, September 12th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. In Washington, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Democratic leadership have been circulating an aggressive plan to lower drug costs. That's D.C. correspondent Lev Fasher joins us to walk through that plan. The closely watched biotech company Moderna is out with new scientific evidence demonstrating that injections of its custom-built messenger RNA are capable of teaching the body to make its own medicines. We'll break down the data. And finally, our stat colleague Matt Harper will join us to talk through a fascinating interview he recently conducted. That interview was with David Fagenbaum, a University of Pennsylvania physician and patient advocate who figured out how to treat his own rare disease that nearly killed him five times. But first, a word from our sponsor. Bringing a new drug to market is getting tougher and tougher. At Cineos Health, we're changing the game. The result of a merger between INC Research and Inventive Health, Cineos Health has one goal in mind, shortening the distance from lab to life. Visit CineosHealth.com forward slash podcast. That's S-Y-N-E-O-S health.com forward slash podcast. We have talked a bunch on this podcast about the Trump administration's plan to tackle drug prices. This week, however, we're going to talk about what the Democrats are cooking up. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Democratic leadership have been working on a plan to lower drug costs. They recently circulated documents detailing the latest version of that plan with lobbyists, and Stats Washington team got their hands on copies of that document. So here to walk us through what we know so far about the Pelosi plan is Stats DC correspondent Lev Fasher. Lev, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, everybody. Thank you. So Lev, you and Stats other DC reporter Nicholas Florco reported that the Pelosi plan is much more aggressive than folks had anticipated. What are the elements that make it so aggressive? There are a few things. I should note first that this was a draft document, as you said, being circulated among DC lobbyists and Pelosi's office has said that, you know, it's not current, it's not necessarily a final plan. Obviously, that's the spin you put on an inadvertent rollout. But one of the elements that stood out to us off the bat was a clause that would force drug makers to pay back the value of price increases above inflation dating back to 2016. Obviously, we've talked a lot about capping price increases moving forward. Forcing drug makers to pay back price increases retroactively is a new idea. Another major element within the plan that Nick and I recorded is a version of an international price index where drug makers are essentially prohibited from charging more for drugs in the United States than they charge abroad. And that's noteworthy because it's, of course, the Trump administration's signature drug pricing plan. The Trump administration's version is much more limited. It's just Medicare Part B drugs. There are a lot of things that happen before the administration's plan is implemented, but it's a clear sign that Pelosi is essentially daring Trump to endorse this Democratic legislation, which is much more aggressive than we anticipated it would be. So, do you have a sense of how we wound up with this aggressive version of the plan? How much of this is a sign of like the rising influence of progressives in the Democratic Party? 
I think it is certainly a win for them. Every time Pelosi has described any type of drug pricing plan and any time her drug pricing advisor and domestic policy advisor, Wendell Primus, has spoken publicly, every time there's been a leak of a draft or some of the policy concepts within their plan, progressives led by lawmakers like Pramila Jayapal and Mark Pocan, who co-chair the House Progressive Caucus, they have really, really agitated for it to be stronger. They really use tough language about big pharma and what they call price gouging. And they want full Medicare negotiation. They want Medicare to have the right to negotiate prices for every single drug that its drug benefit covers. And under the Pelosi plan, there's authority for the health secretary to negotiate the price for 250 drugs. The 250 most expensive drugs in Medicare Part D account for over 80% of that program's spending. So progressives are getting essentially almost everything they want. But there's also kind of an open question of of whether this is a, a political document or a policy document. And you know, whether Pelosi thinks this bill has a chance of receiving support from Trump and being signed into law eventually, that's less clear. Now, of course, with a Republican-controlled Senate and a Democratic-controlled House, no drug legislation is getting passed unless the two parties can reach an agreement. So how far apart are these plans? In short, very, very far. There is direct negotiating authority for prescription drug prices under the Democratic plan, Actually, those prices would extend to all payers. It's not just for Medicare. Medicare would negotiate a price and then commercial payers would have access to the same price. It also includes the International Price Index proposal. As we've written, that is a White House idea, strangely, that Republicans oppose and that Democrats support. So between paying back the value of price increases above inflation, between the International Price Index, between Medicare negotiation for 250 drugs, the Democratic plan in the House is just vastly more aggressive than the Senate Finance Committee's plan that passed out of that committee in July. There is a degree of capping price increases above inflation moving forward. That's the most controversial element of that Senate plan. It's widely expected that Mitch McConnell won't bring that provision to the floor. People are very, very skeptical that a Republican-controlled Senate would pass those those caps on price increases beyond inflation. So even the few elements of the two plans that the House and Senate have in common are unlikely to make it into any final version of the bill. And that's what's led people to a lot of skepticism about Congress's chances for actually passing wholesale drug industry reform in the next year. So do you think there's a chance that we could see narrow legislation passed around this idea of the international pricing index, given that there is bipartisan support for that idea? I think in short, no. I think it's kind of a non-starter for Mitch McConnell and many Republicans in the Senate. They actually tried to pass an amendment preventing the Trump administration from enacting that plan as part of the Senate Finance Committee drug pricing plan. And I think it's seen really as a negotiating tool for the Trump administration. Remember that this is not conservative policy. This is enacting a price cap based on a foreign market. In some cases, those foreign markets are, you know, they're single payer healthcare systems, very antithetical to traditional Republican healthcare policy. I think a lot of people see the White House's plan to enact those foreign price caps as leverage for something else, for instance, the Senate Finance Committee drug pricing package, there's a sense that maybe if the White House can convince the drug lobby to oppose that Senate package less or not at all, and if Congress can pass some form of drug pricing legislation, then the White House might at some point back off 
their plan to enact those caps on Medicare Part B prices. So I think it's very unlikely that Congress would pass that provision as standalone legislation. So, Love, what's the next step for Pelosi and Democratic leadership as they move forward with this plan? So they have to actually roll it out formally. They have to have a lawmaker introduce the bill in the House and the various committees, namely the House Energy and Commerce Committee and the Ways and Means Committee, have to consider the legislation. So Democrats probably have to move fairly quickly. I think if Pelosi wants to put the ball in Trump's court and in Republicans' court, she actually has to do it. The House actually has to pass this aggressive legislation, not because they think it will become law, but because Democrats there will be able to say, hey, look, we passed legislation. Now it's your turn. But again, that is seen in many circles here as agenda setting for 2020, as really setting the tone politically regarding what the presidential candidates should be saying on drug pricing. There is very little credence given to the idea that Nancy Pelosi can get Republican support for her plan and get the White House's support for her plan. Lev, great stuff. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me. record this podcast on Thursday, the biotech company Moderna is gathering investors in New York City for a meeting. The agenda? To showcase new scientific evidence demonstrating that injections of Moderna's custom-built messenger RNA are capable of turning the body's own cells into medicine-making factories. Yeah, that's right, Rebecca. Moderna is probably most familiar to our listeners as one of biotech's biggest unicorns. The company has been most successful, perhaps infamous, for raising billions of dollars from private investors and then pushing through the largest initial public offering in biotech history. What Moderna hadn't done yet, however, was to demonstrate in any convincing fashion that its messenger RNA can be used to make effective drugs and vaccines. And that's why its stock price has been down about 30% from the IPO. So Adam, you were in New York City on Wednesday and met with Moderna's chief medical officer to get a preview of those new mRNA data. Has the company proven that its technology works? Yeah, Rebecca, I'd say Moderna took an important and positive step forward with these new data, you know, which do show that injecting mRNA into people can induce the body to make vaccines or drugs. You know, now the new data are preliminary and they're from early stage clinical trials. So there's a lot more work to do. And there was one concerning safety signal seen in a single participant, which definitely bears watching. So as a reminder for our listeners who slept through college biology, mRNA are molecules that take the specific genetic instructions that are encoded in DNA in a cell nucleus and then move it to the ribosome where proteins are made. Right. So this is natural biology. It's how our bodies make proteins. So what Moderna is trying to do is synthesize that mRNA in a lab. It's essentially making a recipe for a specific protein or drug. And by injecting that mRNA into a person, it seeks to have the body's cells make that protein drug. So the first Moderna program targets cytomegalovirus, or CMV, which is a common virus that's usually kept in check by the body's immune system. It rarely causes any problems in healthy people. But women who become infected with CMV during pregnancy can pass the virus to their babies. And that's a problem because it raises the risk of neurological birth defects. There is currently no approved vaccine to prevent these infections. Right. So here Moderna is using mRNA 
to create a protective vaccine against CMV infection. The therapy consists of six mRNAs, which, when injected into the body, instruct the cells to make two proteins or antigens that the immune system needs to identify and neutralize the virus. And the second program involves a disease called chikungunya virus. Right. Uh, I know that sounds like an exotic poultry recipe, but chikungunya is a mosquito-borne disease that causes severe joint pain. Uh, you typically see that in tropical or subtropical parts of the world. Now, here what Moderna did again was take synthetic mRNA from its lab, like with CMV, but this time it instructs the body to make an antibody, so it's a therapeutic protein that can block the chikungunya virus. Now, this is the first time that anyone has shown the ability to use an mRNA drug to make a secreted protein in humans, so that's pretty cool science. But there was a safety issue, right? Yeah, Rebecca, there was. So at the highest dose, Moderna's drug caused a significant amount of injection site reactions, and one of these patients reported a fast heartbeat and an abnormal heart rhythm on an EKG. Now, these symptoms were not deemed to be serious. They resolved without any medical intervention in one day. Still, you know, there's something to watch as Moderna moves more of its treatments into clinical trials. You know, for many of the rare diseases and cancers that Moderna wants to target, these mRNA medicines will need to be dosed regularly and at higher doses. So while today's data are positive, there are reasons to temper enthusiasm. Next up, we're going to bring you the remarkable story of a physician who nearly died five times from his rare disorder. So that physician is University of Pennsylvania professor Dr. David Fagenbaum. He has a rare condition called Castleman disease, and that sits somewhere between cancer and an autoimmune disorder. So Fagenbaum eventually figured out how to treat himself, and he's detailed that experience in a new book called Chasing My Cure. Our stat colleague, Matt Herbert, recently talked to Fagenbaum about his health odyssey, and Matt joins us now to share what he learned. Matt, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. So Matt, as you reported, Fagenbaum first got sick when he was in medical school. Tell us about the symptoms he experienced and how bad it got. It got really bad. I mean, he recounts getting last rites, being completely delirious. He was a quarterback at Georgetown. And his body just completely swelled up. You see pictures of him with huge amounts of edema, all his muscle being consumed for energy because he couldn't really consume food. And he was treated with chemotherapy, which caused him to lose his hair. It was a pretty grueling thing. And it kept recurring that they would be able to kind of push it into remission with chemo. But then that wouldn't stick. It took a long time for him to realizing that he wanted to get involved himself. He was a medical student when he was diagnosed at 25 and that he wanted to figure out what was wrong. And Matt, what was his lowest point through all of this? There was a really striking part of our conversation when I asked him that very question, what his lowest point was. The first time that I almost died, I reflected on my life and I started regretting things I hadn't done and I hadn't said and you know, people I loved that I hadn't told that to. It was so painful that it has like changed the way that I live. It was so devastating for me. I mean, I was thinking about this girlfriend, the love of my life that I hadn't fought for. I was thinking about the future that I wanted to have. They'd kind of broken up and he actually turned her away several times when he was sick and dying because he didn't want her to see him like that. 
but it was while he was sick that he realized that he really wanted to be in this relationship and he kind of developed this ethos of not wasting any time. So Matt, tell us all the things Feigenbaum tried to get better. Well, I think you'd need the book. We're talking about five relapses. There was one drug in clinical trials for his disease. He tried that and was thrilled to be on it. And then he relapsed. Uh, so then he tried IgA, immunoglobulin, and he was really excited about that, but he also again relapsed. And then finally, he was looking at what was known about the disease and decided that maybe an mTOR inhibitor would work. For people in biotech know this has kind of become a hot target in cancer, but he went with the original mTOR inhibitor. mTOR stands for molecular target of rapamycin, which is a drug. Rapamycin is also known as serolimus, which is a drug that he took. And he's been on that for like five years. It seems to be preventing a relapse. And that has really mobilized him to look for other drugs that might help people with rare diseases that are already approved. And I think we should listen to what he had to say about that, too. We, as a medical community, need to really think about, okay, well, if we now know what's wrong, let's work really critically and think really hard about the drugs that we already have that might be solutions for what's wrong tomorrow as opposed to 10 to 15 years from now. What else do you think we can learn from the Feigenbaum story? Well, I do think there's this really big message about patient involvement in their own treatment. We worry about this a lot and struggle with it a lot because on the one side, we have patients wanting to take drugs that we pretty much know are unlikely to help them. You know, there are patients who fall for outright quackery. But on the other hand, you have patients like David, and we've seen this a lot kind of with the revolution in DNA sequencing, with the internet, with social media. We're seeing a lot of patients who are changing the ways their disease is treated and their voices really need to be heard, not just because of some abstract people's voices deserve to be heard, but because they're right. Um, and I think that's an important thing to remember, that that nobody's more motivated to figure out a disease than someone who's suffering from it. So Matt, how is Feigenbaum doing these days? What's next for him? He's great. I mean, he wrote this book, which is a phenomenal read. You know, these stories don't always end up being readable. He really did a great job writing it. He's running a foundation, uh, the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network. And he's also a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, where he is a doctor and working to uh, develop more rare disease drugs. Uh, he's very active and he has a new baby. So a, a pretty happy ending, at least at the moment. So that book again is called Chasing My Cure. Matt, thanks as always for coming on the podcast. Thank you guys. does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Amanato, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and what you make of Moderna's science. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. We really do appreciate the feedback, so thank you. And if you like what we do, please tell a friend or go online to leave us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform that you use to get your podcasts. And Damien, we miss you, but we'll see you all next week.